Last week, we had Nils Thorgerson on from Vergero, and I was introduced to him by Matt Quinn, who runs Great Lakes Drone Company. Now, besides being one of the top providers of drone light shows, they also do search and rescue missions among a variety of other services. And the search and rescue, as I remember Matt mentioning, is something that they especially turn to during COVID when there was a downturn in demand for drone light shows. So we are so excited to have Matt on the show today. He is a pioneer in this industry and uh, we thank you for your time. Welcome, Matt. Thank you for having me on. Looking forward to it. Yeah, so um, kicking off, uh, I was looking on your site. Uh, did you start out doing drone light shows or did you start, uh, you cover a variety of sectors, including agriculture, uh, we'll get to more of that later, but you do aerial cinematography, you work with realtors. Um, how did you, how did your business start out? So when we first started out, it was just like any other drone industry, you know, it was uh, um, back in 2016 and, uh, you know, we were getting the real estate jobs and, you know, trying to convince farmers what uh, smart farming was and, you um, you know, just trying the different avenues to see what was going to pick up and what was going to stick. And, um, you know, I, I ended up seeing, obviously, um, Intel's Disney show down there and stuff. And I'm like, you know, there's got to be a way to do this. And um, that started the whole drone light show thing. But in the meantime, we still kept doing everything else, um, which I found out during COVID, I should have tried a little bit harder. <laughs> to maintain all of those relationships and everything and stuff um, once the entertainment world shut down. But, um, you know, it is what it is. So like during COVID, we specifically focus more back on our public safety connections. Um, currently right now we have uh, 911 contracts with three counties and provide 911 um, emergency drone services for three counties and all the fire departments, law enforcement agencies and everything within those three counties. In 2020, we ran 126 calls. And um, so far this year, we're already at uh, 41 call outs um, for 2021. Um, we have uh, three emergency vehicles set up with all of our drone equipment and everything and stuff um, that's stationed um, um, geographically so that uh, we have about an average of a 20, 30 minute response time to just about any location in the three counties. Um, we're also, um, one of the uh, leaders in the uh, state public safety Mavis UAS program. In fact, we're hosting the state uh, Mavis public safety UAS uh, training weekend um, at uh, our hangar out at the airport in August. Um, it'll be the first public safety um, UAS training event in state history. Um, MSP will be there. We're gonna have the Coast Guard helicopter there. Um, Autel's bringing their dragonfish for us to demo that and fly that around a little bit and everything. Um, you know, and thanks to uh, influential drones for um, making that happen for us. Um, so we got a lot of interesting things going on. Um, you know, one thing that uh, we didn't tell a lot of people, and um, this will probably be the first time I'm publicly saying it, is that uh, during um, during COVID, we actually applied for our um, Part 137 exemption for uh, pesticide carrying, and uh, we got that during um, 
during the COVID times and everything and stuff. And what we did is not only did we get the 137 exemption, um, we also took our tech from the drone light shows and put it on the crop spraying drones. One question that came up to my mind as you were explaining how you have a 20 minute response time, what does the, um, um, the charging of the batteries, how does that work? You always have your batteries charged up and ready to go, all your equipment just ready to go. Uh, how does that look from a, from the uh, 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 the perspective of the pilot? You know, you got to be ready to go, kind of like a firefighter, right? Yeah, so most of our staff are actually like firefighters, paramedics, law enforcement agents and everything and stuff like that that do this part-time. It's considered part-time on call. Um, I can... Uh, Basically, we have an app on our phone in which um, I can kind of show you here in which we get dispatched to calls directly from the 911 center. Um, so oh, wow. it goes off and um, it gives us all the information and stuff. Um, the trucks are housed um, strategically at different fire department locations um, throughout. Uh, well, Kalamazoo is actually Kalamazoo County Sheriff. And um, all of those are located. So all the trucks are plugged in. Um, they're inside in a um, controlled, uh, heated or cooled environment and everything and stuff. And all the batteries are plugged in and constantly charging. And we've adjusted our, our charging um, rates with, uh, with the batteries um, so that uh, they'll automatically kind of cycle themselves and everything and stuff while being in the charger. And um, we, uh, we rotate them um, every two weeks, I believe, is what we currently have it set up right now. Um, so when they get in the truck and so we have, um, basically we have, uh, ambulances, um, and inside those ambulances are all the underwater drones, the aerial drones, our, uh, rope rescue equipment, our dive rescue equipment, all of our water rescue equipment. Um, and, um, they're, they're all stored there as long with the, you know, the iPads and everything else and stuff. And um, the truck itself is plugged in. So, you know, it constantly has power. And then we have um, 5,000 watt inverters in each of the trucks because we run the TVs and refrigerator and everything else that we have in the trucks and stuff so that the, that the staff is comfortable because, I mean, some of these drowning calls that we go out on, on Lake Michigan, we're out there for like eight hours with the underwater drone and everything and stuff. And I mean, the last one that we were on and everything and stuff, I was out on the Coast Guard boat with the underwater drone for, oh, about two hours. Um, so, um, you know, we try and make sure that, you know, with all the life vests that we have and PFDs and the cold water suits and everything. So we have all of those things set up so that uh, our team is safe and they're comfortable and everything else and stuff, because you literally never know when you're going to get a call or when you're going to do something or how long you're going to be gone. So, Wow, that's really impressive. What would you guys fly? What platforms? Yeah. Um, so we have uh, we have like a whole plethora of like DJI aircraft, obviously, um, but uh, we also have um, we also have some Autel. Um, so like the Autel uh, dual um, thermal, and then we have um, all the new Mavic Advances, as well as the Enterprise, as well as the M two hundred series. Um, um, we've recently started using some of the crop spraying drones on some wildfires, um, testing that out. But the funny thing is, is every grass fire we've tried to put out with it, we've blown the grass fire out before we could even spray any water with the downdraft of the blades. So, so there's still some testing going on with that to see how effective it might be. Um, 
but it's not meant to be like a primary tool. It's meant to be more of a, you know, on these field fires, you know, the firefighters are fighting the, um, the front line of the fire and stuff and the drones are actually coming in behind it um, where they're fighting and stuff and just wetting down what they've already knocked down so that you don't reignite, um, you know, hitting the hot spots and stuff so between the thermal drone and seeing where the hot spots are and flying the spray drone out and you know dumping some more water on it and everything and stuff and uh, being able to do that and allow the firefighters to do what they need to do and stuff has you know changed some of the dynamics of some of the stuff that that we're doing so awesome a uh, question for you matt i mean if, if you for i saw on uh, online that you've guys have been involved in a number of search and rescue missions as well uh to be able to deploy quickly like what is what is your ideal drone like like what are the features that uh, that are most valuable for you during during a search and rescue uh, mission well it all depends on what we're going on because i mean we do suspect searches we do um um water rescues uh, we do dive recoveries um so it depends on what we're going on so like if we're going on a missing person and everything and stuff and it's at night um, obviously we're defaulting to any of the drones that have 640 thermal resolution. Um, so, you know, whether or not it's, uh, an auto, whether or not it's, the the Mavic advanced or whether or not we're pulling out the XT on the M200, um, you know, those are our go-tos for like missing persons or suspect searches. Um, during the daytime, it's more of a visual aspect. Honestly, we'll pull out the Z30 zoom during the daytime. And depending on how much residual heating is going on during the day determines whether or not um, we pull out the, uh, the thermal or not. Just because, um, you know, especially during summer, the warmer it is, you know, people actually start looking cooler on the ground than, than actually, you know, uh, an actual thermal signature. Um, yeah. you know, when we're doing a water rescue or whatever and stuff, you know, deploying a drone that's got a, uh, water activated, um, um, PFD to be able to drop. So what we've actually done is like on the, uh, Mavic zoom or not the, or the Mavic two series, um, we actually have dual drop systems. So, um, we'll take off, we'll fly out there. So it's, it's actually like a two part thing. So if they're still in the water, we can still see them. One aerial drone will take off and then the, um, power ray dolphin will actually deploy in the water on the surface. So that's carrying a PFD and a rope. And, um, the aerial drone is going out and deploying a water activated PFD as well as a weighted glow stick. So that way, if the victim goes down before we can get any of these items to them and stuff, we've marked their last seen location. And um, we can also start seeing where the currents are going. Um, once they go under, obviously we resort back to deploying the underwater drone, the sonar systems, dive teams, stuff like that. Um, but uh, prior to that, it's all about uh, surface and aerial. If they go under, um, at that point in time, what we end up doing is we actually um, we load up uh, we load up the drone and we actually fly a line along Lake Michigan and we drop about ten glow sticks. They're weighted glow sticks, so that way the current, not the surface current, but the underwater current, will actually drag those glow sticks. That way we can see them from the surface, and it'll allow us to actually track where the current's actually moving. Because sometimes, a lot of times when these people go in and everything and stuff. 
stuff, um, you know, it's red flag days. So it's, it's too yeah. dangerous to put a boat out there. It's too dangerous to put anybody in the water. Um, the last person that we had swept off the pier and everything and stuff, we actually deployed um, the only thing that we were able to get into the water that night was the underwater drone. Um, that was the only thing that was able to get in. Um, but the current was so strong and so fast and everything. By the time that we got in and got to where it, he was last seen at and everything and stuff, he was he was already gone. So <clears throat> it ended up being about two weeks before we were able to recover. Those are tough. Um, of the search and rescue missions, because I've read a lot about that work you do and it's not always a happy ending. You're basically um, dealing with some deaths there. I don't know if a percentage is the right way to put it, but how often is it that um, it's ends up that you're just identifying a body versus actually rescuing? A lot of that is actually based more on um, educating the public safety departments um because it's more about early activations so since we started assisting public safety back in 2017 which like 2017 was just like a couple calls here and there and then 2018 was more 2019 was more 2020 you know even more than that um is uh our percentages are going up because we're getting activated sooner and um we we have more policies procedures of what works best in place because obviously um you know drone tech is new and then you know the best way to actually do this is still somewhat unknown um you know every department out there says this is what works for us um but we're trying to work what figure out what works best the majority of the time um so our success rates are going up exponentially over time um, because we're getting activated sooner we're getting called more and um, we're putting research behind what we're doing and why we're doing it um, based on you know we just go up and fly and look for something um, so you know for example you know if we're doing a suspect search what a lot of people don't realize is that um, the uh, the law enforcement agency will set up a perimeter well, you know, the first uh, the first uh, suspect search we ever did and everything, we went up and, you know, we knew that the dogs and he ran that way and the dogs and the canine team went, ran that way after him and everything and stuff. So that's the way we went. We went that way. And, um, you know, and um, it, it took us a while to, you know, find what we were looking for. And then over time, we realized, you know, with law enforcement setting up these perimeters and everything and stuff, we've, we've actually... Um, have a whole new way that we handle this stuff um, that we started late last year and has been very effective since then is that when we arrive on scene um, the aircraft will take off and we will actually go fly the perimeter looking into the area that they have cleared. so you know we're flying the perimeter where all the law enforcement agents are and we're looking into the area um, and uh, that's been 100% successful every single time. And the other thing that helps is we're live feeding that directly to the MDTs and to the cell phones of all the officers that are involved. So they're seeing real time what we're seeing. And um, that's worked really, really effectively so far. So, And the same thing with missing purchases and everything else. So. 
Do you feel that uh, first responders are appreciating and understanding the values, the value that drones can bring, specifically in search and rescue missions, or is it still too new a technology where they don't fully understand how to use it, what the what the benefits can be, or and 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 also I guess the question is, what can we do uh, with a show like this or in media in general to help spread this story so that more first responders are going to be thinking about, hey, we might be able to use drones in in our searches as well. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, because like Van Buren County, one of the counties that we cover and everything and stuff, they haven't figured out how to get their CAD system to work specifically for us. So um, we get um, they attach just to one fire department that doesn't necessarily get a lot of calls. And um, mm -hmm. so they use their department to trigger us. But occasionally they do get a call. So <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, with, with with that being said and everything. So. I think first responders out there actually value it. The problem is, is that, um, you know, municipalities in general, especially with COVID and everything else and stuff and where the world is right now and everything and stuff, trying to get funding to run their own programs and everything and stuff, um, especially with the defunding movement of, you know, law enforcement and everything else, mm -hmm. it's, it's become really difficult for them to make capital purchases, to run a drone program and to keep up with technology and everything else. Um, so that's why, you know, our model, you know, and then, you know, trying to have law enforcement officers or even firefighters on volunteer departments or anything, keep up to date and current on all the regulations, yeah. all the training, um, to be able to take off a drone and fly in any situation at any given time and stuff like that. Um, we've found and they've found working with us that um, it's safer and more cost effective to contract it out. Um, and um, then you're basically, you know, just paying as you need it versus laying out all that stuff. Um, because, I mean, you have departments of volunteer departments out there that, uh, you know, they're still running with fire trucks that were built in the 1980s, 1990s. Um, so having a budget line to, to add a drone um, to use on structure fires and missing persons and everything and stuff is just not something that they're going to be able to do. But being able to call us and to help and everything and stuff like that and pay for like a one time service, um, you know, that they use once a year or something like that and stuff that makes economical sense. How do you make that work on your end, though? I mean, if you if you get that few calls throughout the year, do you, do you have to complement your your uh, drone rescue services with other drone business areas like inspections or real estate just to make make your agenda uh, fill out or no? Well, yeah. So you know, so when we're when we're looking from a business perspective and everything and stuff, obviously, you know, we have you know the drone inspections, everything else. The um, so. You know, occasionally, you know, we may need one of those drones for for work and everything and stuff. And, you know, yeah. they'll just go to where the truck is, pick up the drone that they need and everything and stuff, because we have enough backups and we have enough. Um, we have a strong enough system in place that taking one drone out of service to go do, you know, a commercial job or something is not going to affect any of our responses or anything that we're doing. Um, and that's how we've built everything to, to work that way. Um, but in the same aspect and everything and stuff, you know, that's why the majority of the staff that do the public safety side of things isn't the side of staff that's doing some of the other stuff. Um, so, you know, because, you know, having, having like, you know, 
for instance, you know, I've known Kara for a while now. If I have her fly a drone at a structure fire and everything and stuff like that, um, how is she going to get feedback to the incident command of what she's seen? Because she has no idea what she's seen. Um, for example, we had um, two incidents in the past six months in which two different structure fires. One, we had a firefighter that was um, making an interior attack. Um, making an interior attack. Sorry, this is how my day goes. It's just nonstop phone calls and messages and everything and stuff. Um, making an interior attack from the outside through a window, and he was actually underneath the eaves of the um, the building, and he couldn't see the power line that was attached up there because it's above his head and he's underneath and everything and stuff. But through the drone footage, I could see the power line. I could see him making the interior attack, and I could see that power line sparking out at the pole. Well, that's yeah. telling me that power line is going to come down soon. We were able to radio to command, get him pulled back, and about 25, and you can see it all on video, about 25 seconds after he pulled back is when the power line blew and snapped and came down. Um, we had another incident in which um, we were working a multi-dwelling structure fire. We're providing aerial coverage, and um, we saw part of the roof start caving in, and we knew firefighters were inside the building. We were able to radio to command, let them know that um, the roof is starting to go. They did, uh, they did their uh, mayday evacuation, got everybody out, and about a minute and 25 seconds after everybody was out was when the entire roof came in from the roof onto the second floor. Um, you know, those are things that um, drone technology allows to assist yeah. in keeping everybody else safe just like you know the guy that got swept off the pier um you know being able to put an underwater drone in in the attempt to try and locate them is hundreds of times safer than putting divers in um in in water like that in fact you know the most of the dive teams around here now pretty much have a policy you know when we get a sonar hit or when we do a first look the underwater drone goes in first before any divers go in so yeah it's it's interesting because dji started counting the number of people or lives that are saved with the help of drones but like the situations that you're describing where you can warn firefighters that the roof is about to collapse they wouldn't count as lives saved but they are in fact because you're preventing a situation that otherwise would have probably resulted in people getting injured or possibly dying well right and and you know a lot of these numbers are skewed and everything and stuff because like yeah. you know i know for a fact i've never reported to dgi or the newspaper or anything else anybody that we've found or saved and stuff yeah. the drones and everything and stuff um because you know quite honestly it's none of their business or anybody else's business um because we're you know we're here to help the public and make the difference when we can make that difference um and um you know it's it's not about bragging rights or anything else and stuff it's about, you know, getting the job done, getting people home and, um, you know, making sure that uh, that everybody is up to speed on their training and and we're able mm -hmm. to step in and, you know, get your kid home that wandered off into the woods or get grandma home that walked away from the AFC or, you know, prevent a firefighter from, um, um, you know, being trapped under a roof or something. So, I mean, there's been times that we've been called to find evidence that's been tossed into rivers and tossed into lakes and everything else and stuff. So, I mean, there's a multitude. And then you take it one step further and, you know, you get into community um, planning and disaster planning. 
Um, you know, there was an incident last year. We had straight line winds come through this town and just devastated the town. And it was at night. And so you have no power. Um, you know, the phone lines, 911 systems being overloaded and everything and stuff. You got trees down everywhere and stuff like that. And um, they called us because they weren't sure if we could fly or not, because obviously it was still, you know, raining a little bit. Visibility was fine and everything. And, you know, it was one of those storm lines that just went through and then, you know, is clear and crystal clear skies out and stars and everything else and stuff. Um, but we got there and it was our drones that was lighting up the area for first responders to look at everything and stuff. It was our drones that were finding the, uh, the car that was underneath the tree, um, down a road that they couldn't access yet and everything and stuff because they had to cut trees away to get down that road to get to where that car was and stuff. Um, so, you know, even, even like situations that, that we see all the time here in Michigan and stuff, we've been finding different ways to, to utilize the technology to, um, to speed things up and make things a little bit safer. Matt, can you talk, this is amazing, by the way, uh, uh, just incredible use of drones. Can you talk about the uh, legality, the regulation side of things? I'm assuming that you have to fly sometimes in the Class B airspace in zero grid. How do you get away with this? Are you operating under COA? Are you getting uh, SGI approval before you fly? Tell us more. Well, fortunately, we kind of live in the middle of nowhere, and um, the largest uh, the largest class airport that we have around here is basically Class D. Um, but uh, we have a great working relationship with with all the towers around here, including the military base in Battle Creek, um, and um, and I know most of the. Uh, most of the uh, ATC directors by by name. Um, we do have, um, so before the new night waiver stuff um, went into effect and everything, we did have um, uh, wide area authorizations and everything and stuff. And if we needed a zero grid authorization, we just called ATC and said what was going on and stuff and they just cleared us. Um, you know, we, we have involved, um, um, we, we've done a few SGIs, not necessarily um, for um, for like zero grid approvals or anything and stuff because we have direct contact with the towers. Um, but we've done SGI for um, basically like tactical beyond line of sight on a couple SWAT team calls. Um, we've done a couple other beyond line of sight um, operations um, by getting by getting the uh, the office involved. And um, also, um, obviously, you know, setting up TFRs in the state um, for different operations and everything. I mean, recently there was a, a big wildfire up north in Michigan and um, we got uh, part of the state uh, emergency response system and stuff. Um, we got called about that. And even though we didn't go up there and deploy, uh, we were able to provide guidance on how to get a, a TFR in place up there for the DNR that was working the wildfire up there. Um, so because it was something new for them, because, you know, typically in the middle of nowhere and everything, you don't have a, lo a lot of like Cessnas flying around or anything like that or a whole lot of people interfering and everything on, a, on, on what we would consider to be. Um, a small wildfire, but it's large enough that you have to have air tankers doing drops. 
but now it's a whole new level of air safety because now as soon as it hits the news, every recreational drone operator and every commercial drone operator out there wants to get the footage to sell to this place or sell to that place or whatever and stuff like that. Um, so what originally public safety wasn't getting TFRs for, you're now seeing a lot more TFRs get put into place just to protect the airspace of whatever is going on. And for our listeners, I know we all understand what TFRs are, but I know some of our listeners have asked in the past that we talk about what the acronyms mean. So TFR, Temporary Flight Restriction, uh, SGI is, I actually don't remember what it stands for, but it's the, the government agency that kind of provides a special approval to fly in the airspace uh, when need be uh, to uh, to public safety agencies. And I, I think there was another acronym that we used, but I don't remember which one. But yeah, th thank you, Matt. That's uh, a follow-up question to this. We have uh, quite a few people that I talk to on a regular basis from our, our student base at Pilot Institute, and they're asking, how can I get involved in doing search and rescue? A lot of times they say, I want to lend a hand, I want to do this, even uh, providing my service for free just to help people. What, what would you say, what would you recommend that people do if they want to get involved with uh, search and rescue? Well, you know, a lot of communities and more and more communities are coming on board with what's called CERT programs. Um, this was recommended by uh, FEMA. Um, so most of the CERT programs are ran by your local emergency management for your county. Um, so I would recommend, you know, at the minimal level, reaching out to your local emergency management to see how you can get involved and volunteer your time. The biggest thing that I need to tell everybody that's out there and everything and stuff, unless you're working with them in an official capacity and everything and stuff, you got to stay away. Um, you know, we've we, we've had quite a few incidents and stuff where, you know, it gets out on the news that there's like this five-year-old missing child and stuff out in the field and everything and stuff like that, or, you know, has been missing for a couple hours and stuff. And then, you know, don't get me wrong. I, I love the outpouring of support and help that, that you see um, from people that want to help, that they want to do a ground search, they want to do this, they want to do that. But you also have a lot of people that just show up with their drones and start flying around and everything and stuff. And um, that becomes problematic because they don't know what's going on in the air. They don't know what our drones are doing, what they're, where they're going, how we're handling things, let alone they don't know what other air assets that we have coming in. Right now, um, we're working on building out a what we call a public safety air boss program. Um, and the reason that we were coming up with this public safety air boss program is because we've learned over time over the past couple of years is that, you know, typically if you called in, you know, Michigan State Police helicopter, you called in the Coast Guard helicopter or something like that. That was the only thing that was in the air. You didn't have to have an air boss that had to manage, you know, 10 different drones from five different companies or departments, along with a Coast Guard helicopter and a state police helicopter and a state police airplane and everything and stuff. So there's a whole new dynamic to air safety um, that that wasn't in play just, you know, two years ago. Um, so, you know, we're, we're trying to build out a program to educate specific people on, okay, how do we manage a large incident in which we have multiple drones and we have multiple manned aircraft and how do we safely integrate and mix all of them together in the same airspace? 
Um, and how do we track that? How do we manage that? How can we visually see that on the screen to maintain, you know, deconfliction and everything else? So, you know, a lot of our air show background of performing at air shows, working with the air bosses and stuff and seeing how the FAA works through all of that process. And then looking at, you know, all of our history and public safety and everything and stuff. We're working on a program that combines those two things together. Um, so that way, you know, let's say that we have like five, 10, you know, certified air bosses, public safety air bosses in the state. So when we have a big incident, when we're deploying multiple drones and uh, multiple resources, you know, the state will have a resource list. Hey, you know, we need you to come up and run our airspace for us. You know, and that person's going to be familiar with like the SGIs and contacting the FAA and getting the TFRs and putting everything in place as a resource to to the state and to local agencies to help manage those situations before, you know, hopefully before there is an incident at some point in time. Do you think Remote ID will help you guys with accomplishing that and, and getting a clearer airspace and, and finding who's flying in the area? Remote ID is going to be helpful to the extent that um, we can potentially see um, potentially see the other people that, that aren't involved in the incident and stuff flying around and everything and stuff and being able to contact them and say, look, please don't. Um, you know, I know a lot of uh, agencies I've talked to are, are looking forward to the remote ID. I mean, just like... You know, I mean, even from like a drone light show perspective and everything and stuff, being able to have flight radar, you know, on on one of our apps and everything and stuff and being able to see what the normal traffic patterns are and who's flying around us and everything and stuff. And um, not only do we use like flight radar, but we also use just general raw ADSB in data um, so that we can because like, you know, military and some other people, you know, they don't they don't broadcast their stuff to to um you know like flight radar and you know flight aware and stuff like that but they do broadcast so if you're running a raw adsb we're we're able to see them on our screen and everything and stuff so that way we kind of know a little bit more about the airspace and what's going on around us from from a drone light show perspective um but you know so there's definitely some advantages to it the problem that you look into that you look into and stuff is that how long is it going to take um, how, how accurate is it going to be? Um, how effective is it going to be? Um, how cost effective is it going to be for people? And, you know, we have a lot of drones out there right now that, you know, are, are they going to update them? Are they going to be compliant and everything? Because if you look at, I mean, and, and you have to look at it from a realistic perspective. So you look at, um, you look at the FAA's integration of ADS-B for manned aircraft. Well, what a lot of people don't realize is the ADS-B mandate that went into effect for manned aircraft is only required if you fly in controlled airspace. So the airport that we're at, that we run all of our shows at and our hangar at and where we do all of our practicing and everything and stuff is a Class D airport, okay? The majority of the planes at that airport do not have ADS-B and they will fly around all the controlled airspace so that they don't have to pay the money to put ADS-B on their aircraft. Mm -hmm. That kind of defeats the purpose of what we want to see and what we want to know, but 
And granted, the FAA regulations for remote ID are a little bit more stringent. They basically say, look, if you're not going to do this, you can only fly at these particular, you know, pre-approved sites. I get that. Um, but I, I think I think there's going to be a long learning curve beyond, you know, the 2023, you know, implementation or 2022 implementation. So, um, you know, we're just going to have to see. Yep. Thank you. Question I have for you, uh, Matt, if, if you could contact the FAA today and ask them, hey, can you guys change these and these regulations to, to make your work more effective and, and easier? What were what would be the first things that will come to mind that you would like to see change from the FAA? Um, I actually just had a phone call with the FAA yesterday <laughs> and uh, and proposed that exact uh, that that exact thing. Um, basically, the conversation went, um, hey, I want an exemption for uh, 363. And they're like, mm -hmm. no one has an exemption for 363 yet. And I'm like, yeah, I know. So let's try and see what we can do. So 363 is um, um, basically mounting anything that can be considered a dangerous weapon on an aircraft and um, we're on a drone and um, we're trying to get pyro approval for our uh, for our drone light shows so we've actually um, already started that process and we're waiting for the faa and for the department of justice to determine if the pyro we want to use is considered a weapon or not considered a weapon so if if they determine that it's not considered a weapon then all we have to do is get a Part 107 exemption for hazardous materials, which our Part 137 exemption for hazardous materials for chemical disbursement does not qualify for hazmat approval for um, for pyro. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, the biggest thing that I, if I could ask the FAA to do anything is streamline a process for the different departments in the FAA to communicate together. So, you know, when we went through our 137 process and everything, you know, we're dealing with the FISDO's office and the 137 department. When we're getting our multi, you know, multi unmanned, we're dealing with the 800 division and everything else and stuff. And, you know, the 800 division writes our multi unmanned says approved as written, okay? Um, in, in our narrative and all the documentation and stuff that we submitted. But then the Part 137 office is saying that our 107.35 paperwork has to explicitly state and reference our Part 137 exemption number to qualify for them. So these two, the two departments are not talking to each other because, yes, if by the letter of the law and how our our waiver is approved it says that we can but the part 137 group mm -hmm. says we can't yet until they add that one line into it so you know if the if the different departments of the faa were actually talking back and forth to each other then all of this headache on our end could have been eliminated but you know it's it's a learning process for the faa as well so now, of course, the FAA, their history has to do with manned aviation. Uh, do you feel that they are set up well enough then to deal with the, the fast-growing unmanned uh, aviation industry? Or should they perhaps consider setting up a, a special division within the FAA that caters only to 
drone, uh, the drone industry, drone community, and, and the rules and regulations that apply to us? Um, I think the FAA is uh, is handling the situation the best they can with their manpower and with their budget and everything. Um, I think they're poisoning themselves to 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 handle everything and move forward and everything. The one thing that I do have to say about the FAA, because we've worked with a lot of FISDO offices, we've worked with a lot of different branches of the FAA over the past several years, and every single one of them has been supportive, and it hasn't been... Mm -hmm no, you can't do this. Um, no, we're, we're, we're not going to make this happen or anything and stuff. It's always been, let's figure out how we can make this work. Yeah. And a lot of them want to, a lot of them want to learn from all of that. Can you tell us a little bit more about the part one, is it 139? Um, what, what's the goal with this? What, what are you planning to do with that approval? Um, with the Part 137, so we have the Part 137 exemption, which allows the, um, um, which, which, the Part 137, so like Part 137 is agricultural crop spraying. So 137 is written that, um, you know, there's very specific things that you have to have for your Part 137 certificate. So we had to get an exemption of some of those 137 regulations to allow carriage of pesticides on a drone and some of them are as simple as um, you'll carry your logbook and your ID and everything and stuff in the aircraft well we can't do that on a drone so we have to have an exemption for that um, you have to do a check ride with the FISDO um, yeah we can't do that with a drone we can do a demonstration but we can't put them in the aircraft and fly them around so we had to get those exemptions and exemptions and everything and stuff um, before we could even actually apply for our Part 137 certificate. We've done everything for our Part 137 certificate except for um, getting that wording piece changed on our 107.35 that we're just waiting for that office to kick it back over to us so that we can give them a copy. So then they can sign off and give us our certificate. Um, so it's, it's a lot, a lot of paperwork. But what that allows us to do is, um, you know, specifically one of the things that we're targeting is uh, blueberries. So there's actually a, um, a beetle that only comes out at night that attacks the blueberries, um, specifically around here in Michigan, but in other states and everything and stuff. And manned aircraft cannot crop spray at night. Unmanned aircraft can crop spray at night. So it's a whole market right there because otherwise the farmers have to go out there at night and hand spray because, you know, if you ever seen blueberry bushes, they're pretty tight trying to get tractors in between them to spray and everything and stuff. That's why they use manned aviation to spray them. Um, the other aspect is uh, mosquito control. The state of Michigan currently has a huge issue right now with, um, with the triple E virus. And, um, you know, we, we last year and the year before we kept getting phone calls. Hey, is there any way that you could come, you know, spray this field because we want to have this activity here? And we had high schools calling us, hey, can you spray around our football field and our stadium and stuff? Um, because we think you can do it a lot faster than us. Well, yeah, in theory, um, but we got to we got to get all these approvals and stuff. And, you know. Um, you know, crop spraying with drones and everything is never going to replace um, the the tractor spraying. It's it's not going to replace mm -hmm. manned aviation spraying until regulatory aspects allow us to carry bigger payloads and bigger sprayers and everything else and stuff. So I think at some point in time, but I think 
you know, right now our target market is, you know, plain and simple, finding that sweet spot in between um, the ground spraying with the tractors and the, the manned aerial spraying. And we've been working with um, the Michigan State University Extension Office on finding where those sweet spots are um, and doing the research, because that's the other problem with aerial crop spraying by drone. Nobody out there is really doing the research. You know, you can't, you know, when, when I was, so one of the projects that I was on was in Sri Lanka, introducing the, uh, and Karen knows a little bit about this, uh, introducing the uh, crop spraying program to, um, to the tea farmers out in Sri Lanka. <clears throat> and one thing that we did um, was, and I was probably there for a total of eight months over two years, um, but I, I stayed for a whole growing cycle um, at the tea plantation. Um, and um, I was out there, I was out there for a month, left for a month, came back for a month because you can only be in country for 30 days without an extended visa, yada, yada. Um, so we spent a whole month um, spraying and everything and stuff like that. And then um, we came back and then spent a whole nother month spraying. And we compared like the two fields and everything. And we worked with the tea research board and everything because like in the mountains, you can't drive tractors, you can't fly airplanes. Um, you literally have to hand spray in the mountains in Sri Lanka for, for the tea that you guys drink. And one thing that we found was it took, uh, it took two workers about four hours to spray one hectare. And it took one drone and um, a drone operator and an assistant about, uh, about one hour to do one hectare. So we could do four times the workload um, that they were doing. And what we found was that we had a 30% increase in, um, in uh, product volume from the fields that we sprayed compared to the ones that they were hand spraying. Um, so that was like some of the first time that there was, and this was back in 2017, 2018. This is some of the first time that um, that was before the MG1S was out. This was the first Agris MG1 that we were using. Um, and, um, but that was like the first attempt of doing like any type of actual research um, and, um, you know, comparing, okay, how much chemical were they using compared to how much chemical we were using? Um, you know, is, is it more efficient to use that? Um, are we getting underneath the leaves? Are we only getting the top leaves? Are we getting deep down into the leaves? And every crop is going to be different. And you got to work on the research on every single one of those different crops, different chemicals to try and find out, okay, what is this going to be good for? And what is it not going to be good for? A drone is not the solution for everything. Unlike a lot of people try and sell and believe and everything else. Um, so everything we're trying to do is research based, even search and rescue. Every single call that we that we've gone on and everything and stuff um, from structure fires to missing persons to water rescues to drownings to everything else and stuff. Um, we pull all the flight data. We we mark and plot all the evidence. We we mark everything. We have data of over 126 calls outs in the past year to create studies from. I got a follow-up question on that, uh, Matt. If you look at the emergency response uh, service that you guys provide with, with drone teams, 
let's say if you had to grow really quickly so right now i think you're you're catering to three different counties if we were to upgrade that to let's say now you have to cater to 10 different counties like what would what would be your plan of action to be able to scale up that quickly and be able to cater to such a much larger uh, area what, what are the things that would come to mind first to be able to do that successfully well um first we would um we would have to see what uh we would look at their call volume um over the past uh, over the past five years to figure out um, which county. So let's say that we're adding seven more counties, so that we're at ten counties. Mm -hmm. So we'd look over the call volume with the county nine one one center to determine, okay, what calls here would specifically, based on our experience, warrant a, a drum call out. Um, and then we'd sit there and go through and look at everything and stuff, and then um, figure out strategically where the best places to put the trucks are. Uh, figure out how much staff we're going to need to bring on, how much training time, who's going to be somewhat trained versus the people, because we have to train everybody, but some people need to be trained more than others, obviously, um, yeah. and um, figure out uh, what the plan is going to be. Uh, but in the same process, we also have to look at educating the public safety departments, the fire departments, law enforcement agencies and stuff, because you guys got to remember up until, you know, well, even now, um, you look at, um, you know, a five-year-old kid mi goes missing and everything and stuff, doesn't show up and everything and stuff. Um, what happens? You get Amber Alerts, you get, you know, multiple law enforcement agencies, you get the drone called out, everything else and stuff like that. Um, but if you're over 18, um, a lot of times, I mean, if I just want to get up and leave and go down, leave town and not tell anybody and stuff, I have that right. So typically anybody over the age of 18 and everything and stuff, um, and even sometimes 16, it's pretty much the, uh, the philosophy and the protocol that uh, you don't really start looking for them and stuff until you hit the 24 hour mark, unless there's some type of evidence that suggests otherwise. Um, and one thing that we found over the past couple of years and everything and stuff with some of these missing person cases, and the biggest reason that it was never um, and people don't really like launch this large scale search and everything and stuff is because it wasn't cost effective. Um, you know, 80% of these people, 85% of these people, you know, left by choice and they don't want to be found and everything and stuff. And, um, but you call in all these search and rescue teams, canines, this and that and everything and stuff. And you have this huge presence for somebody that's just gone um, by their own choice. Um, but what we found is if somebody was last seen on foot, not in a vehicle, but they were last seen on foot and um, they haven't been seen since, um, we've been educating law enforcement agencies and public safety departments to call us right away because now you're not activating a big team, you're activating two people and yeah. a drone. And, um, you know, that's, that's also exponentially changing the course of stuff. Recently, we had a call in um, um, in one of the counties and everything and stuff, and she had been missing for 13 hours, and about two hours after we got on scene, she was found in a field. Um, so, um, and it was an adult left, you know, left by choice, um, but was left on foot and was in pajamas and a tank top, was out overnight and everything and stuff like that. Um, but you know, as as we educate the departments more and we get called out earlier more and everything and stuff, you're going to start seeing some of these changes and you're going to start seeing um, these, these success rates go up because it's based on data research and um, yeah. best practices. 
then so my next question then is you guys obviously have been involved in a lot of these these drone operations already and have a lot of experience and and figured out some of these best practices is there any medium or platform or organization that allows you guys to share this information and this experience with other similar organizations elsewhere in the country so that we can all learn faster together and and ramp up this uh, the way that we can use drones to help and, and benefit society yes that that is our goal um currently right now we're working at the state level um and um we have been in talks with uh larger agencies about um creating a a a data share um program for public safety agencies and stuff but we're still trying to scope out how exactly that's going to look and um how we can legally do it from like all the the hipaa laws and um privacy laws and everything else and stuff of how we can how we can share these these case studies um but share it in a way that uh that obviously is you know on a legal premise uh kara mentioned earlier that sometimes you don't have a good outcome but i'm sure a lot of times you do have a good outcome what is one of the search and rescue mission that you've done that you think is the most rewarding to you that you, you go home at night and you like I, i did something really good today um there's a there's a specific call that that i personally remember and stuff that that i had that you know great feeling and everything and stuff is we had um we had a couple of people that uh and granted it wasn't a missing person search but we had a couple of people that uh did a three county car chase ran some cars off the road damaged some squad cars um shot at people shot at law enforcement and everything and stuff and they ran off and the uh, law enforcement literally was looking for them for about 45 minutes before they called us in and um but they were literally hiding in the marsh um so like the dogs wouldn't track them or anything and stuff like that um we got on scene two minutes later we had them in sight five minutes after that they were in custody and um knowing the violent spree that they went on and knowing what further potential damage that they could have done to the community and everything and stuff. Um, mm -hmm. That was one of those rewarding moments. Yeah. I can't imagine. I can't imagine. Yeah. Thermal drone, uh, I presume. Yes. Yeah. Now we actually had like one suspect search that we went on and stuff. And as soon as he heard the drone over him and everything and stuff, he actually walked out of the woods and held his hands up and uh we uh we guided the uh and it was that night you couldn't see it we guided law enforcement in and everything and stuff and the canine deputy actually asked him why'd you give up and he's like i heard the drone i knew it was over <laughs> that's good <laughs> uh brilliant <laughs> <laughs> yeah any final questions from the team uh if not i have my final... i have one okay go ahead kara <laughs> okay no it's really quick um so I'm getting into underwater drones, but it is a completely different experience. I don't think a lot of people are aware of that. You just don't have any real situational awareness like you do um, above ground or um, in the air. And how, what would you recommend for, I mean, I consider myself a beginner in the underwater uh, drone arena now. Um, what tips, anything you would recommend just to get assimilated? Because it is a 
whole unique experience. It's completely different. There's uh, really no correlation between UAVs and underwater drones, as far as I'm concerned, besides, um, I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, so, um, you know, obviously there's a lot of underwater drones out there in the market. Um, you know, we currently have our preferences of what we use. Um, but, um, you know, learning how to use the underwater drone and everything and stuff, you know, my, my best recommendation is one, get it into a pool so that you can see it and see how it moves when you interact with it um, and okay. see how on the lower left-hand side, depending on which one you have, a lot of them, a, a lot of the better ones actually have like a view of what it looks like in the lower left-hand corner, um, whether or not you're using mm -hmm. a Gladius or a Power Ray or anything and stuff like that. Um, but having that visual look and correlating that and getting that into your, into your um, muscle memory of how it moves and everything and stuff, being able to visually see it and see it on your screen and everything and stuff. Um, and then, you know, taking your, your tether cord and taking a permanent marker and marking every 50 foot or every 25 foot on it and stuff so that you have a visual correlation to that as well um, on your cord and everything. Um, and then from there, it's just it's just practice. It's just practice. Yeah. Learn how to use your compass. Um, and here's the biggest mistake I find most people make. Calibrate your compass. Every single time you put it in, calibrate your compass. And then you have to, um, if, uh, if you're really getting into this, Kara, um, do some research on how submarines actually um, figured out where they were going and everything and stuff. Um, Hunt for Red October. There's a great movie for you to watch. I'm sure you've probably seen it and everything, stuff like that. But Long time ago, uh, but yeah. Right. So, so you look at that movie and everything and stuff. And when, when they're going through those cabins and everything and stuff, how are they, how are they measuring where they're at? Do you remember? No, as I said, long time ago, my yep. memory doesn't so, serve so, me as well as it used to. So they're to. measuring, they're measuring by time. Okay. So like when we do an underwater grid, because, you know, obviously, you know, I'm not paying 50, $60,000 for underwater GPS and everything else and stuff. So, so to do a grid and everything, we had North, you know, at whatever speed we're setting it at, because we can see that. So let's say that we're doing five, okay. Five knots or whatever stuff. So we had North five knots for 30 seconds. Then we turn right 90 degrees for five seconds. And then we head back south for 30 seconds. So we're creating a grid based on time. And that's how we know where the drone is at as we're doing a underwater search. Yeah, that's a lot like flying an airplane in uh, in the clouds in IFR. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, uh, Matt, we always finish asking the question from our guest. Uh, what's your favorite drone to fly? And maybe it's for fun, not for work. Uh, do you still fly for fun on the side? And, and which drone do you use? I wish I had time to fly for fun on the side. But honestly, I mean, I I still like flying the M600. You know, there's there, it's, it's big, it's bulky, it's, it's, um, it's multi-versatile. I mean, we just uh, partnered with a company. We have a water sampling device that we mount underneath it. And 
we'll fly out and grab water samples for DEQ and everything and stuff. And, you know, being able to fly out over the lake and bring that big beast down to just like two feet above the water and pull up, you know, a good quart of water from underneath the surface and fly around. It's just fun, you know, and it's, uh, you know, the different things that we've put on that thing over the years um, for different projects and stuff, you know, it's, you know, the Santa sleigh all lit up at night. I mean, there's just, you know, it's just fun. Mm -hmm. Um, is DJI discontinuing the M600 or they're not producing it anymore? I heard someone say. I honestly don't have that answer. No. Not, maybe it's I, I not know. necessary. Because it works. And I like the fact that it's, what, a hexacopter? So if one of the rotors right. fails, you're not crashing. That's, yep. you know, that's one unique aspect or benefit of flying it. Well, unfortunately, you guys, I'm like three minutes late yep. for another meeting, so... Yeah. Well, thank thank you for your time so much, Matt. Yeah, you guys thank are you. welcome anytime. You guys know how to get up all. Yeah, knows how to get all of them. So we appreciate awesome. it. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Yep. Anytime, guys. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. All right. Bye.